You're listening to All Things Video, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the past and charting the future of the online video ecosystem. You're listening to All Things Video. I'm your host, James Creech, and today's guest is Charles Gabriel, head of U.S. advertising for Wild Brain Spark. Charles, welcome to the show. Thanks, James. Appreciate it. Uh, thanks for having me. Yeah. I wanted to uh, you know, talk a little bit about your early background in media and entertainment. We actually met, I think we, we put the pieces together after we were reintroduced five or six years later by our mutual friend, Jocelyn Johnson. But I remember you know, being in a conference room with you back in your, your AOL days. So I, well, I'm sure we'll get to all those points along the journey, but, but take us back to the start. How did you uh, find your way into media? Wow. Um, <laughs> I, I would say that I probably have a very long and winding road and uh, how I got into digital media. Um, so if we go way back, I will just say that I've had two interesting uh, careers in different industries. I mean, I was in the, the finance industry prior to digital media and how I found my way was honestly, the world was changing. Uh, finance was moving towards, you know, uh, uh, data and product and the roles in sales were changing to let me explain to you how to use this product and not I'm going to sell something to you. And you could see the redundancies starting to happen in that industry as things got more automated. And I looked, quite frankly, to other industries that seem to have a tremendous growth curve ahead of them. And to me, it was pretty clear with uh, the early days of YouTube, um, even even pre-acquisition by Google, but once you saw YouTube and then you know the other players starting to emerge and, and some of the challenges, uh, the technological challenges on scaling out video player technology and things like that, um, and then looking at the fact that TV advertising dollars would follow at some point, it really made me want to get into video. And I had a, a good friend and colleague at the time um, who had been working in advertising, was, uh, it became the first, uh, I believe the first Vivo seller because he was at Universal Music. Um, and he just made a few connections uh, for me. And quite frankly, I, I talked my way into the industry. Um, <laughs> I was gonna say, was that a challenging transition from finance to media? I feel like I don't hear that too often. Yeah. Oh, I, I think for sure. I mean, I think, um, you know, I went into a world of, of understanding product that isn't physical necessarily, right? You know, you're talking about inventory that is, you know, media-based and, you know, not knowing what a CPM was, right? So for sure there was. I got in um, on the ad tech side working for Broadband Enterprises and Matt Wasserloff, um, who I think was a fantastic early pioneer in the space. Um, and really just learn the ropes from the end of the publisher and the monetization and the collection of inventory and the aggregation of inventory. And then seeing at that point, the, the pain points for agencies and advertisers as things needed to be standardized so that you can deliver advertising and really scale it out. Um, and that was, my, that was my entry point into, into digital media. Um, for me, I'm a, you know, I'm a voracious learner. I, I, I love to learn and stay ahead of the curve and continue to read. And, you know, that then uh, led me to what are the other challenges, right? One of them is how do you monetize all this existing inventory? The other was how do you get more content out there? How do you, how do you improve, uh, you know, the latency of players and, 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 and things like that? So um, 
that eventually got me into the world of uh, Israeli tech companies. Um, and I worked with the five men guys who, uh, again, I think very early um, in the approach, uh, they had put together sort of the, I'll call it the three hands in the, in the pot kind of business where they were distributing the player technology to publishers uh, and increasing the amount of video content that would be available on the web, um, mostly through clips and short form programming. Um, but combining that with the monetization systems that needed to go with that and the content that needed to go with that. And then providing that as an offering out to the publisher community where they did not have to pay for the technology or pay for the content access, but they would share back, um, you know, the inventory and then, and then there would be a sales approach. So, um, that was a really great experience and that led into the acquisition, uh, by AOL. Yeah. And, and I, there, think, I think Five Men stands out as one of those very early iconic media players, right? Uh, you know, and, and then from there, you, you know, you spend the time at AOL, but end up later at Maker Studios and ultimately at First Media. So you've really been at a number of these kind of pivotal players in the video space over, say, the last decade. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think all of them, um, sorry, I had to close the door there. Uh, all of them um, played their part. I mean, if you look at what five men did, and then you look at all the businesses that really emerged afterwards, um, I would probably argue that the investors in five men might've thought it was too early to, to sell. Um, but I think it was, it was the right approach, the right uh, partner at the time. And, and Tim Armstrong certainly, I think, uh, saw the, the vision and where things were going. Um, you know, you, you fast forward past that into some of the other experiences that I've had, you know, yeah, Maker Studios was at the forefront of the creator community on YouTube. And, you know, how do you harness that power? And how do you use data to identify the new and upcoming creators that can potentially have careers beyond YouTube and cross screens? Um, and so that was, you know, another added piece to really understand because when you're uh, working in sort of the large publisher community at that time, you know, the influencer play wasn't really their bag and it wasn't really on their radar as much. I think that they looked at it as traditional TV, which is hire the most expensive celebrity and stick them in a show and hope that people watch it. And then that certainly, uh, I don't think panned out that well. Um, I mean, I think you can probably look at what Yahoo did with, with Katie Couric and the amount of money they spent. And I'm not so sure that that was um, super successful. I mean, maybe, maybe it was, I, I can't totally speak to that, but I did look at it, some of those examples and say, it doesn't work that way anymore, right? Yeah. The, 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 the industry is changing, the, the type of content that people want have changed and, and people will always want good storytelling, but certainly that transitional period was influencer, short form, mobile, uh, new formats. And, and Maker was, was ahead of that curve and Disney saw that. And um, you know, my, my short time at First Media, I mean, they were you know, really at a, at a point where they understood the data uh, that was um, actionable and that really drove engagement with content on social platforms. Yeah. So given all this collective experience, you ultimately decide to go into the kids space. So I'm curious, you know, what attracted you to children's entertainment? Yeah, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great question. I think, I think two or three things here. Um, one, I'll just start sort of from the heart, which is, uh, A, I have kids. I have two daughters that are nine and seven. Um, so all of the content and all the programming and the approach to how you advertise to kids and what's important to kids and 
everything from education to entertainment was really, it just hit home for me. Um, you know, second to that is if you look at the kids space, obviously you have um, incredible brands sitting with some of the major broadcasters. Uh, and of course, you know, um, you know, Disney's portfolio overall, but look beyond that. And even beyond the Hollywood system, there was only a few players, I think, that were really doing scaled big things around premium content uh, and or tech related to the kid space. Um, uh, Hasbro uh, took the first big bet, right? They acquired E1. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it was a $4 billion acquisition. Um, and E1 you know, notably has in incredible brands that they've built. Um, and that play makes sense, right? You know, uh, if you are a major toy company, you need to be in the media space as well as part of your marketing and part of your consumer touch point. Um, you look outside of that, uh, formerly DHX Media, which is now Wild Brain, really is the next big bet, uh, in my opinion, uh, if you're going to look at a consolidation play across the industry, given the size of library of broadcast programming they have, given the rights they have, given the management that they have over other uh, programmers' content, they have a distribution arm. Um, I, you know, we're, we're programmed across SVOD, we're programmed across linear and broadcast, and now an emerging and big AVOD business. So, to me, it looked very interesting that you have Hasbro making a play. Are there other companies in the space that'll make a play possibly? Um, and then you have just the sheer amount of consumption and quality family programming and kids programming that are going behind paywall, right? So it's the, it's the Netflix land grab for a lot of this content and then the emergence of Disney Plus. And so now you look at this landscape and you say, wow, there is so much premium animation for kids and storytelling for kids live action and then family programming that's nice and clean and positive in terms of the storytelling all going behind paywall. Which is and, pretty recent, and, right? For a long time, that didn't exist. You had YouTube, right, as a destination, but it was kind of some brand safety landmines. Some stuff was safe for kids, other stuff wasn't. They, they rolled out YouTube Kids, this dedicated app with the idea that, okay, this will be a stamp of approval. Parents know they can trust it. But for a long time, you know, it was a pretty limited set of inventory. Now you have Netflix and other SVOD platforms kind of leaning into that, that, that space. What do you think, what, why has that changed so rapidly over the past, say, you know, two years? Well, uh, certainly, you know, as we all know, the last year accelerated everything. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, this is my, my guess on this. Um, I don't necessarily have the data to totally back this up, but anecdotally from my own experience with my kids and then looking at what pops up often on these platforms, kids likely drive the daily usage that is needed on these platforms. I mean, most adults aren't spending every single day watching a certain amount of content. You are binge watching, you are saving stuff for later dates and, and, and the times in which you're available to watch, but kids are a daily user, right? You know, whether that's from a preschool perspective in education or uh, uh, dare I say babysitting from parents in some cases, um, or if that is, you know, uh, 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 family time watching, especially out of the, the pandemic year that we just had, I think a lot of parents were looking for what are the other activities I do with my kids? 
And that sort of brought people around the TV again. And uh, a lot of that content chosen to view with the family is going to be based around what the kids, A, can watch, what's acceptable, right? You as a parent need to determine that. Um, I would definitely say that, you know, what was PG in the 80s is very different than, you know, what, what likely should be shown to kids today. Um, and so you look at you look at all of that type of content, the SVODs have definitely made it very clear that they're going to pay for that content. They're going to pay the right amount of money for that content because it costs a lot to create. Certainly premium animation uh, is very expensive. Um, and that they recognize the fact that this type of storytelling is bringing people to the platform. Um, you know, we, we launched, uh, we're the uh, majority uh, owner of the Peanuts, and we launched Snoopy in Space on Apple TV Plus right before the pandemic started in March. Uh, we recently launched the Snoopy Show in February. And those are both really good anchor properties for a platform like Apple TV Plus because it serves two purposes. It, it brings new audience with the kids. It serves the nostalgia for the parents. And that leads to signups. That leads to adoption. That leads to usage. And I think the, the big players in the SVOD space really know this. Yeah. Now you work with a number of advertisers in the kids space, which has its own set of challenges, right? Given the limitations on data collection and ad targeting, how do you approach advertising in such a you know, heavily regulated space? Um, carefully, um, as we as we all know, I think I think first and foremost, we everyone in the kids space, but really anybody who is a parent knows that protecting the kids is super important. Um, I would argue in the world of data privacy, protecting everybody is super important. Uh, with just the the way that the world has moved so quickly towards you know advanced technology and data uh, to identify people and to to follow and track them. Um, with YouTube specifically, because let, let's not forget here, yeah, you have all types of services, a lot of them originating out of the US, but YouTube still is the biggest AVOD platform by a mile in every major market, right? And kids content on YouTube is the second or third largest content category on YouTube. Mm -hmm. um, so YouTube, you know, from regulatory reasons, as, as we all know, if you've read the trades in the last two years, uh, they moved towards the Made for Kids initiative on YouTube main, which has never been a platform that was designated for kids. It was designated for 13 plus, but they know the consumption is super high. Um, and so uh, with that initiative, it does a couple of couple of good things, but then causes some challenges. Uh, one, it triggered specific ad policies. Um, I think the pendulum swung really far. So they ultimately eliminated all food brands from being able to advertise to kids. Um, I, I think that, again, I think that's highly restrictive. Uh, I think there's a lot of good things happening in the space of, uh, for food brands, um, trying to be more uh, health conscious for kids uh, in terms of what products are available in their lineup. Um, uh, so that, that's a challenge for the entire advertising industry. Um, the other major challenge, and, and it makes sense, is that there is no data used from a user level perspective in order to protect the kids, um, regardless of the fact that the account owner is the parent and is the adult. So, you know, it causes a number of challenges, but it also starts to bring us, it brings us back to what is really a core tenet of advertising, which is context, right? Which is 
taking a program or a show and, and, and really lining up the brands that suit that program and that suit that audience really well and thinking about the contextual alignment of advertiser message to content, which I think companies like Wildbrain, where we own a tremendous amount of content on YouTube and manage you know, 800 plus channels, we are a good partner to then go and be able to do that at a much more granular level than say YouTube is going to do directly with uh, any one advertiser. Um, and where ad tech companies are playing in the auction, you don't really have that ability to guarantee lineup against a certain piece of content. And as you uh, outside of with broader privacy concerns playing out right now, as we move towards you know a world which maybe doesn't have cookies in the future, how are we going to do targeting? I think it's going to be a lot more around content or around you know profiles of anonymized uh, you know uh, subsets of users, but not individually targeting single users anymore. Yeah, um, you know, again, it depends on where the world moves outside of kids uh, with this, but you know, certainly there's a lot of signs that you know data privacy is going to continue to become very, very important. Um, yes, context makes a play in there for sure, and then really, it's about the um, data signals that you can collect that can inform these decisions in a better and a smarter way, right? So. You know, thinking a little bit about the the third party data modeling that has always occurred on adult audiences where, you know, so and so looks like so and so, therefore it's the same. The approach has to be a little bit different and I, I liken, you know, our approach and what we've been doing for, you know, quite a few years now because we've been in the kids space and having to deal with these types of restrictions. Um, we've built products and tools that for lack of a better way to describe it, it's like the Netflix recommendation engine meets IBM Watson, right? You're, you're taking sort of people's recommended viewing choices, but at a video show or channel level, not at a user level. And from that, you're looking at signals where you can make predictive insights that are fairly accurate around what is the composition of this audience in this channel on this show against this video. And in doing that, I think you can start to really smartly plan your advertising, certainly to kids. But I think that the world, when it comes to adult-based advertising and consumers getting more control over their privacy and what they're willing to share, um, you know, I think products and tools like that are going to continue to emerge and are going to need to emerge in order to answer that problem for advertisers. Because we've set advertisers on a course that says, you need to collect more data, you need to own more data, and you need to create and own more content. But I do think this play now with data privacy is going to impact that. Yeah, I think you hit on a good point for a number of reasons, right? Obviously, user behavior is totally different in the kids space because the people we're talking about don't, don't use like search in the way that an adult would, right? A child might not know how to read or spell and they can't you know, use the keyboard to meaningfully find the content that they're looking for. So YouTube kids and other services have created other means of surfacing that, right? They'll organize in the discovery based on characters, right? You wanna watch Paw Patrol, you wanna watch something with Spider-Man in it, right? So you can easily find what you're looking for. I think as we move more towards voice, right? That could be a way for kids to search for and find the content they're looking for. And ultimately algorithmic discovery, as we've seen from Netflix, as we've seen from TikTok, right? Clearly we're moving towards a world in which you know, the, the system is going to learn from your behavior and recommend programs that you'll like based on your interests. 
Yeah, for sure. And, and the voice piece is really interesting. And that, you know, kind of brings us back to the advancements in connected TV and, and um, you know, the, the applications that are available in connected TVs um, and just the overall use case for connected TV as a primary vehicle for kids uh, anyways, in terms of getting them beyond the mobile phone and the tablet, um, which is a much more individual experience and then bringing it back to uh, the TV. But when you, when you think about voice, I mean, you know, you look at LG, you look at Samsung, you look at Vizio, you look at these manufacturers, I mean, they're all there, right? I mean, you can pick up the remote and press the button and my kids can say, you name the, the, the channel, the brand, the show, the, the keyword, whatever they want to, and it's going to pull up content across many platforms. Yeah. I wanted to get your thoughts too on some, some big news recently, the Roblox IPO, right? There's these foundational platforms that are emerging as kind of the next generation of uh, game player entertainment experiences for kids. And in fact, with Roblox, one of the most fascinating things is that some of the, the top developers for Roblox games within their ecosystem are kids, right? Which is really cool. So it's not just kids are consuming the content, they're also kind of creating these experiences. What is your take on that as the future you know, of, of a gaming uh, ecosystem and also for kids' entertainment experiences? I think it's incredibly interesting for a number of reasons. One, you have kids who've grown up, they're digitally native, uh, uh, and their creative skills are pretty incredible. And the fact that they, you know, uh, I always like to say kids are a marker of things to come. You know, they created within YouTube, they've created, uh, you know, remember the days of Vine before it went, uh, they're creating in TikTok, they're creating in Snap, but um, now they're creating in, in these virtual worlds in Roblox. Um, so I think it presents a number of opportunities, not just for uh, users and creators um, to expand what they create and how they see their own worlds, um, but it, it, it represents a huge opportunity for uh, publishers. It creates a huge opportunity for brands. Mm -hmm. um, and I know, you know some of the things that we're thinking about being the owner of significant IP is what do our versions look like in these worlds? Um, and how do we go about uh, creating that? We have some, some uh, stuff that will be announced uh, this year. Um, but I also look at the engagement of the kits. And this is different than your typical gaming in, in, in many ways, um, because oftentimes the kids themselves are building and adding to, to the things that they're doing in Roblox. Um, and it's, it's very social, right? I mean, they're all like, they're, they're going there as, as their club, right? They're, my, my daughters are meeting up with their friends from school that they haven't seen in a while. And yeah, they're playing, but they're chatting a lot. Um, and again, a bit different than I think how some of the other gaming platforms, even though they have that social component, it's often sort of a competing against and mm -hmm. communicating. Mm -hmm. Whereas in Roblox, it's very much a shared, fun, social experiment for kids, I think, at this stage. So um, their IPO, I mean, I think it was inevitable. Um, and I just can only imagine the kind of insights that they're going to have on the behavior of, of kids and teens and, you know, who knows where it goes after that, right? Yep. I mean, uh, um, you know, I, I, I sort of, uh, I'm, I'm a bit of a sci-fi fan and, 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 you know, Ready Player One was like incredibly interesting. Roblox is, is creating worlds and, you know, again, who knows where that goes and who knows where the world of gaming goes. And also as things get more virtual, who knows where the health impacts go and, and, and things that get real serious, you know, when yeah. people spend too much time in a virtual world versus being in, in, in the real world.
100%. And I will actually, for a quick point of clarity, amend my mistake, which is that obviously Roblox had a direct listing rather than an initial public offering. So before everyone uh, goes crazy on us in the comments, I'll, I'll make sure that we get that right. But in any event, 100% agree. Right. I love the cooperative element of Roblox uh, and the fact that it's kind of creating these new experiences for youth. I'm curious, as a parent, what are the things that you're most excited about for the world in which your daughters will grow up in? Oh, wow. Um, I mean, there's probably many things I'm excited about. I'm definitely worried about a lot of things. I'm sure. Um, that's the flip side of the coin. Yep. Yeah, it's always the flip side of the coin. I mean, look, I think in general, the, the, the great things to be excited about is, you know, with kids having the kind of access that they have to the world now, they're more curious about more important things. Uh, and they're more curious about more serious things. And I think that that ultimately is a good thing. Um, I think that they're, they're developing their voice and they're being heard and they're being much louder than kids in any generation have ever been. Um, and certainly that plays an impact in the household and they are impacting decision-making in the household. Um, so advertisers that are listening should be placing bets uh, on kids programming and things like that, that really become important. Um, uh, sort of the, the, the unknowns and the landmines are, you know, as kids go from their experiences as, as 10 to 12 year olds and then into, you know, being preteen and teen, you know, social media still is a big challenge. And I think it's a big question mark because certainly teens place a tremendous value on how people experience them in social media. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that's the right message. Um, and you are seeing a lot of challenges with teens around that. Um, but again, I think the exciting thing is if you watch the kids and you watch their behaviors and you watch where they're going next, that likely presents opportunity for growth and other audiences that are going to come and emerge onto new platforms. Yeah, we definitely need a lot more media literacy because we're growing up with these things in real time. And most of these applications, social platforms in particular, are designed for adult audiences, or at least 16 plus. But let's be honest, right? Inevitably, kids are ending up on Instagram, on TikTok too, and in, in, in large numbers, right? It's no surprise. So we need to find ways to keep them safe. I was actually very impressed to see Instagram announce some steps this week to encourage more privacy for kids monitoring suspicious behavior from adults, making sure adults cannot contact users under 18 uh, if they're not already connected or following you know, one another. Uh, you know, I think we need those types of uh, privacy measures and child safety measures to ensure that the next generation grows up in a safe way on social platforms. A hundred percent. And you know, look, uh, I dare say a lot of this still does fall on the parents, right? You know, you're responsible for knowing and, and finding out what your kids are doing. And it is very easy to be like, you know, hey, mom, dad, can I go play Roblox? Yes, you can go play Roblox and never check in on them, only to find out that they are connecting to people that they don't know and they're having conversations with people that they don't know. And I've had to have those direct conversations with my children and say, look, you know, if you're playing and you're playing with your friend down the street, that's one thing. But if new people are emerging and, and speaking to you, this is not something that you should be engaging with because we don't know and don't know how to identify who those people are. Yep. Um, but that goes back to, you know, parents still have a, have a role to play in their 100%. kids' media consumption. Yep. What's coming next? If you had to make three predictions for the future of the media space, or maybe even kids' media in particular, what would they be? 
Um, wow. Um, I'm, I'm not usually one to, to serve up predictions. Um, I mean, ultimately, I think you're going to continue to see a, an explosion of kids content and animation, um, which you're definitely seeing a lot of. Um, I think it ultimately becomes significant fuel for most platforms. So I think you'll see more of that. Um, you know, you've, you've already seen this, you know, shift where a lot of viewing is occurring on, on the connected TV. Um, that may normalize a little bit because uh, there's no doubt that mobile is still big, but I think it's the formats and the length of content that'll determine the screen that is chosen. Um, in terms of like really interesting, big new next things, um, it's hard to deny the incredible uh, um, movement that Fortnite has had with introducing experiences inside that game, right? Mm -hmm. You know, concerts and things like that that are virtual. I definitely think you're going to see more of that. Um, I think it's incredibly smart. Um, you know, whether that's in other gaming platforms or in other touch points. But again, you know, I think, I think it's, being creative and clever with how we reach uh, not just kids, but everybody um, and have more shared experiences. Um, in terms of technology, you know, I think there was some potential phase of like kid only devices. I find that a tough one to keep going after, you know, I, kids at like eight, nine years old are getting cell phones. So you know, that, that argument, uh, you know, I think some telcos were there early. I think there's a few other brands that have produced like kids only safe tablets and kids only phones. I think it's a, I think it's a tough one um, to continue to go after. Um, and then who knows, you know, with the continued emergence of 5G, how, how things, you know, continue to, to be received by consumers and, and, and get delivered to consumers. So um, I don't know that I have one you know, consolidated prediction. I just think that uh, content is 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 continued fuel, and I think that uh, more creation is is going to happen, and you're going to see more um, potentially specific products. You know, dedicated not technology products, but certainly content service offerings dedicated dedicated to kids and family. Yeah, no doubt, definitely, definitely see that coming. Uh, Charles, one of my favorite questions to ask everyone who comes on the show is knowing everything you've seen and, and you're taking uh, a view of the white space that might be out there, if you were going to go out and start a business in the kids media space today, what would you do? That's a, that's a doozy of a question. Um, <laughs> plus I got to see what I can think about what I can say. Sure. Uh, being in the kids space. Um, you know, I, I really do think that, you know, from a from a scale perspective across all media, you know, dedicating a marketplace to just kids content is probably something that you're going to see emerge. Um, you know, where that's led from, I'm, I'm not so sure. Uh, I can tell you there are one or two of the holding companies that are putting together that idea from a supply perspective. Um, but I do think that that's probably an opportunity on the technology side, no different than how we all developed, uh, you know, biddable marketplaces that were specific for kids advertising, right? YouTube is there in some way, but certainly not uh, um, in, the, in the 
you know, grand scheme of the auction. There's lots of challenges. I think that can be done in a better way. YouTube Kids app, not open to, to a biddable environment. So I don't know what kind of marketplace solution will occur there, but um, I tend to think that something along those, those lines will hit. And then for sure, Roblox creators. Um, I think you're gonna see, just like we saw with every other platform, there will be agencies and talent agencies and stuff like that uh, 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 emerging to pull in uh, networks of creators specific to Roblox and or other platforms where they will be able to create worlds in, not just games, but more than games. Like what is your virtual experience going to be? Awesome, I love it. And where can people find out more about you and more about Wildbrain? Um, so, uh, you know, Wild Brain Spark, you know, hitting our, our, our website to, uh, to take a look at some of the things that, that we're doing. Um, we have a, uh, a very cool uh, newsletter um, uh, that uh, folks can, can, can um, download from, uh, sign up on, excuse me, uh, on our website. Um, and, you know, for me personally, uh, I'm probably not the best person to ask that question because <laughs> I took a stance on social media and I have uh, virtually eliminated all social media for myself um, for a number of reasons, yep. but I am on LinkedIn and I, 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 that, that certainly is a place to, to find me. Awesome. Charles, thank you so much for, for coming on the show today. It's awesome to hear more about the kid space, right? Doing kind of a deep dive into the changes uh, that are coming as a result of regulation, as a result of, you know, more privacy advocates, parents, you know, definitely taking more of a stance and, and saying we need to see some changes here. And also advertisers getting more and more educated and finding creative ways to reach, you know, the youth, but in a, in a safe and a, in, a, in a good way. So awesome to hear a little bit more about your journey and, and what's going on in that world. Fantastic, man. Uh, thank you. I appreciate the, the time. And I, I will leave one other thing here, which is remember that, um, brands matter and and trust matters and that's not just in the world of advertising that's in the world of media brands and content brands and ip and i think people have gone through a phase of gosh there's so many new brands and you do see some cycle back to what is tried true and trusted um so i think you know in our world that holds true you see a lot of iconic franchises that will continue to come back and reemerge for new audiences. Definitely. Awesome. Thanks again, Charles. Really appreciate it. Thanks a lot, James. It was fun and uh, look forward to the next time. Thanks for tuning in. I'm James Creech, and this has been another edition of All Things Video. If you like what you hear, we hope you'll share and subscribe for new episodes. See you next time.